We come now to the last three chapters of Mark's Gospel before we enter into the Passion Narrative. So in chapters 11, 12, 13, what occurs now sets up the story of the Passion, the high point of the Gospel of Mark to which everything has been pointing. Up until this moment in Mark's story, what we've noted is the way that the nature of the household has been carefully described and outlined. Uh, the household has become the place where Mark presents the picture of Jesus and the way the disciples have been. And we've also noted how it's become the place of conflict and hostility uh, and how the opposition to Jesus has slowly increased as uh, he and the disciples come closer to Jerusalem. What's been quite clear in the previous section from eight, chapters 8 to 10 is the necessity of a clarity of vision, which is to deal not with so much with a physical sight but a spiritual insight, and it's clear the disciples are becoming dull. So these internal division, this, the difficulties that are surfacing, the growing faithlessness and incomprehension among the disciples now carry over into this section of the Gospel from chapters 11 to 13. Um, and in chapters 11 to 12, Jesus uh, reclaims or comes into the temple and reclaims the holy site for God. So this will be the focus of our next podcast chapters 11 to 12. In a subsequent podcast, I want to focus specifically on chapter 13, what is the apocalyptic teaching of Jesus because of its unique nature and its unique literary genre. It's these two sections, chapters 11 to 12, and then the subsequent chapter 13, that prepare us for what's going to come in the next section of the Gospel and the Passion narrative where antagonism to Jesus reaches flashpoint where the focus moves to the temple and the whole debate that Jesus has with the religious establishment grows more tense. of these two podcasts that that cover chapters 11, 12 and 13 of Mark. We look at Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, the mood changes and the focus on Jesus and the antagonism from the religious authorities heightens. So in chapter 11, verse 1, he draws near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany to the Mount of Olives where he sends two of his disciples and says to them in verse 2 go into the village opposite you and immediately as you enter it you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set untie it and bring it and if anyone asks you why you're doing this say the Lord is in need of it and will send it back immediately 
whatever of the historical circumstances that warranted the memory of this uh, uh, a narrative, it's quite clear as the story unfolds that the cult and the Lord needing the cult flags a new mode of power and occupation. It's, a, it's an act of humility. So the disciples go, uh, everything happens as Jesus had predicted. They find the cult and uh, they untie it and they bring it to Jesus. And in verse 7, they throw their garments on it and he sits upon it. So he rides upon an animal and upon the clothes of the disciples, the garments of the disciples. He becomes like another disciple. But what's going to occur now as the passion of as his passion nears, the discipleship is the disciple he has now with God. So um, in verse eight, many spread their garments on the road and others cut leafy branches and spread it as well. And then comes uh, the quote, the echo from Psalm 118. Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that is coming. Hosanna in the highest. And that last part being an echo from Psalm 148 verse 1 and Job 16 verse 9. So there's this connection that the gospel writer makes to Jesus riding in in a humble triumphant manner uh, escorted by his disciples and it subverts imperial power uh, and the thought that when emperors rode into a city to conquer it or to take it over they were accompanied by their armies and they rode in on this great horse in verse 11, he enters Jerusalem and goes straight to the temple, the religious center. And Mark says, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So he goes back to the Mount of Olives and to the city or the town just beyond the peak of that mountain, the Mount of Olives. And what Mark begins to set up now from chapter 11, verse 11, to verse 27 is another literary analysis or a literary structure that designates why Mark has Jesus do various things. So it's, uh, it's again it's in this uh, framing technique that we've already recognized. Jesus enters into Jerusalem and he withdraws in chapter 11 verse 11. And then comes the curse of the fig tree in verses 12 to 14 that I'll come back to, the curse of the fig tree. Then comes his confrontation with the authorities uh, in the temple precinct in verses 15 to 19. And then occurs the withering of the fig tree in verses 20 to 26. And then finally this section in verse 27 completes with Jesus entering Jerusalem again and being opposed by the Sanhedrin. So there's this, uh, uh, this um, onion layering effect occurs. So he enters Jerusalem in verse 11 
and he enters Jerusalem in verse 27. That's the outer onion ring, the outer frame. And then there's an inner frame where Jesus curses the fig tree in verses 12 to 14 and the fig tree withers in verses 20 to 26. And right at the centerpiece are these verses 15 to 19 where Jesus uh, confronts or is confronted in the temple where he's tested uh, in terms of his authority. So this structure, this deliberate structure which Mark creates helps us to focus in on the centerpiece which is, uh, occurs in verses 15 to 19. But let's take the, the text as it unfolds, the narrative that Mark constructs. So in verse 11, we've already mentioned it, he goes to the temple, looks around and withdraws to Bethany. Now to verses 12 to 14. On the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves for it's not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. So that's verses 12 to 14. Then comes verses 15 to 19, which we'll skip over for the time being and come to the next section dealing with the fig tree in verses 20 to 26. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Master, Look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Jesus answered, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say, will come to pass, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, Forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Now, this is a very intriguing section dealing with the fig tree. The fig tree is symbolic. So often when um, people read the gospel and they, uh, they go over Mark's gospel and often they come back to this why does Jesus curse the fig tree the fig tree is harmless well there's something quite symbolic happening here and it goes back to the first testament to the old testament and the relationship that the image of figs has with Israel one key text comes from Jeremiah 24 where um, Jeremiah has this uh, vision from God and it's all to do with figs and uh, so let me work through this very very quickly or efficiently perhaps so Jeremiah writes the Lord showed me two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord this was after King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had taken into exile from Jerusalem King Jeconoah son of Jehoiakim of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the artisans and the smiths, and had them brought to Babylon. So this is the context then, the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah goes on, One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad that they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, What do you see, Jeremiah? I said, Figs. The good figs very good and the bad figs very bad, so bad that they cannot be eaten. Then the word of the Lord came to me. 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, whom I have sent away from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. For they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, Like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat King Zedekiah of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem, who remain in this land, and those who live in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror, an evil thing, to all the kingdoms of the earth, a disgrace, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall dry them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they are utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their ancestors. So there are two lots of figs, the good and the bad, and what the what this uh, prophecy re reflects on is the bad figs represent the leadership, the leadership of Judah, uh, represented by King Zedekiah and his officials and the remnant, the elite remnant. So these figs in Mark's gospel become an image of the kind of leadership that is uh, bankrupt. Uh, and then um, there's another, uh, there are other quotes that pick this up. Uh, later, Jeremiah talks about um, the king, this is in 20, 29 following, verse 16 how God will concerning the kings who sit on the throne of David and all the people uh, that God is not going to let loose on them the sword because they are part representatives of this this good these good figs so it's this uh, image of the figs as a symbol of leadership that now gets picked up here in the story in Mark's Gospel, as Jesus comes to the heart of a Jewish religious obedience and the heart of political power in the temple and in the city itself. So it's here in this context that um, Jesus talks about the, the what happens to these figs. And then in the second part of the, of the structure in uh, in verses 20 to 26 in 22 he says have faith in God and then goes on to talk about faith that can move mountains this gets picked up of course in um, Luke's gospel and then towards the end of the section from verses 24 and 25 particularly 25 we almost have a mark and echo of the Our Father that we find in Matthew's gospel in 25 Jesus says whenever you stand praying forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses so that uh, theme of have faith in God believe in your heart then the impossible can be done and pray and offer forgiveness what 
what Jesus does here is, is wrap up some of the key discipleship attitudes that are going to be prominent and that will that will assist in their dealing with an elite and disruptive religious leadership that is uncooperative with God and with God's people. So that comes, this carries over then into the next section of chapter 11 from verse 27 and following to the end of the chapter where there's this, uh, as Jesus is walking in the temple, we have the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, therefore the religious establishment, questioning Jesus' authority. Uh, is it from heaven or is it from, other, from another source? And Jesus contests uh, them to a point that they are, are unable to answer his questions and therefore he decides in the last verse of chapter 11 he too will not answer by what authority he does these things. And that links then to the next chapter, chapter 12 and the parable of the vineyard. The parable is a metaphor or an analogy of what's going on in Mark's day that tries to summarize the historical precedence that leads Mark to write the gospel and address some of the issues. And it's the parable of a, of one who plants a, a vineyard and cares for it. So the vineyard becomes again taken out of the biblical tradition, the First Testament, an image of Israel and God's care for Israel who sets a hedge around it and digs a pit, builds a wine press and a tower and leases it out to tenants and then goes to another country. And, uh, and then as the time arrives, the owner sends servants to the tenants to get some of the fruit of the vineyard uh, and they, they beat him up and send him away empty-handed. Again, another servant, the same thing happens. Finally, he sends his son, who gets uh, disrespected and gets killed. So it becomes a, an analogy, a historical analogy, of the story of Jesus leading, leading the listener to the, of the gospel to what's about to unfold in the next few chapters. In verse 8, they took the son and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, there's going to be a judgment made. And, um, and, the, and the story ends with uh, the attempt to arrest him, Jesus, in verse 12, but because of the multitude and because they recognized that the parable was against them, writes Mark, they left him and they went away. So this, uh, the narrative is building, uh, the tension is building, as the plot begins to thicken against Jesus. And that brings to the next uh, antagonistic uh, event between Jesus and the authorities. This time it's by the religious authorities in verse 13. They want to trap him. And uh, so they bring to him the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? In verse 15, Jesus knows their hypocrisy and says to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a coin. 
and let me look at it. So they have in their possession on the Temple Mount a coin of Caesar, the God King Caesar. The very possession uh, of, of this coin, he doesn't look at it. He's asked, he, asks, he asks them to bring a coin. He doesn't specify the coin. And they bring one. And he gets them to, to describe whose likeness and whose inscription is it. And they say to him, Caesar's. So the very fact that these religious officials, the, the religious leaders, hold within them the coin of the God King Caesar on the Temple Mount, where they are practitioners of the Torah and the primary commandment that they should have no other gods before them. Their very possession of the coin contradicts the very faith belief they have represented by the temple and by their presence on the temple. He says to them, whose likeness and inscription, they say Caesar. Uh, and he then, re re then he responds, or give to Caesar what belongs to God, uh, Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. Well, of course, everything is God's, but they have forgotten that relationship. Hence, the, the scene ends with amazement. And then comes another uh, contest, this time from those who believe that there is no resurrection. So the next conversation is about what happens after death, after a woman has married so many husbands, whose wife will she be? And Jesus responds that, of course, God is God not of the dead, but of the living. And quotes in verse 26 from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, where God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Mark's Jesus' comment is, God is not God of the dead, but of the living. So even the discussion about whose wife will she be in the afterlife misses the whole point about their relationship to God. Then comes the discussion about the great commandment in verse 28. So all in this, this question, again, from the dispute that emerges which in verse 28 is, which is the greatest commandment of them all? What's the first of all? And verse 29, Jesus goes back to the faith practice, the prayer of the Israelite community, what is called the Shema, that comes out of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then um, uh, picks up the ancillary of that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So what's now happening in the, on the temple, in the temple area, in the shadow of the temple, has to do with what is faith. What is authentic religious faith? What's at the heart of faith? And, and uh, what's, what's necessary? Well, it's this belief, the conviction of the one, unity of God and one's relationship to, to God, which flows over into how one is with the neighbor. And um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, Jesus picks up, uh, adding it to the Deuteronomy statement of the Shema from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. 
And this uh, response is affirmed by the scribe who's been testing Jesus. And then the scene ends in verse 34. When Jesus saw how the scribe had answered, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And that comes to the final part of chapter 12, where uh, Jesus denounces the scribes, the religious officials, interpreters of the Torah, who have abrogated uh, their relationship with the people. They have, um, they have so promoted themselves, they have forgotten their relationship with the, those who are impoverished. And that's exemplified by the ways that Jesus reminds his disciples to beware of the scribes who go about in long robes and have salutations in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogue and the places of honour at feasts. So they're exalted. And yet in verse 40 he says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So they're going to receive the greater con uh, condemnation. And then to cap that off in the last part of verse 12, 41 to 44, we have this woman uh, coming, a widow, and places her last, uh, last bit of money in the temple treasury. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus commits himself to critique the way the temple institution has been abused so that someone like this widow does not feel free but in fact obligated to give her last her, her last bits of coinage to the temple treasury uh, in verse 44 the final verse Jesus says about the scribes they've all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had her whole life is represented by this. So on the one hand, this woman represents the poor who are committed to God, whereas the scribes and the religious elite, while, uh, while projecting pretense to God, in fact are far from what God's intention is for the Jewish people. And on that note, then uh, chapter 12 closes. And the next chapter, which we'll now look at, opens up with what is called Jesus' apocalyptic teaching. Chapter 13 of Mark's Gospel deserves a particular attention and it's unique in itself it's what is called the apocalyptic chapter of Mark's gospel and apocalyptic writing it's a particular genre of religious expression that occurs between 200 BCE and 200 CE in that 400 year period and its origins come out of uh, ancient Persia uh, Zoroastrianism we also find it in Babylonia. So it was taken over by Judaism and then it came into the Jesus movement uh, via Judaism. But uh, it's, it's the kind of uh, 
way of understanding God's God's presence that some scholars think even Jesus spoke or preached with a an apocalyptic awareness and this awareness uh, comes out of a, a way of trying to understand good and evil with ancient Persian thinking for example there were gods that were both good and evil there was Ormazd uh, and uh, Ariman, who are co-equal but also uh, different as light and darkness. So there were these competing gods, gods of good and evil. In Judaism, uh, the, an the antecedent uh, contributor to the Jesus movement, these powers of good and evil existed but God was in control of, of them. God had power over them. So this particular genre of preaching was intended for followers of Jesus uh, in a way that expressed God's presence in the time of upheaval. So rather than being fright literature or fright preaching, make, making people feel very nervous about wrongdoing and evil, it was intended to give support to people to believers both in the time of the Jewish writings and in the time of Jesus and in uh, subsequent generations to give them a sense that they are being looked after, that God will overcome evil, that uh, God will overcome the disasters and the tragedies and will give confidence and hope to those who struggle. So in Jewish apocalypticism there are four elements to it. The first concerns the end, the end of the world, the final transformation of the world through God's intervention. That was a, a very strong conviction that God will intervene and finally transform the world. Now, for a believer who hears this, this would be, this would be very comforting, particularly in a situation where there is this upheaval and tragedy surrounding them. And of course, this is uh, the experience that perhaps uh, Mark's own household was experiencing. So the end is preceded by a period of intensified suffering from the elect, a time when evil would boil over. This is the, this is the great affliction or the birth pangs of the Messiah. Now all this comes up in the chapter we're about to look at. And it, it occurs in four stages, according to the apocalyptic Jewish timetable. First of all, there's the present time. What's going on in the present? And there's an identification of the upheavals of the present. Secondly, comes the beginning of the birth, the birth, plan, the birth pangs. And a third moment are the birth pangs proper. This is the affliction that, that is being experienced. And then finally comes the end with the arrival in the way that Mark picks it up, perhaps from the voice or the mouth of the historical Jesus originally, with the arrival of the Son of Man, uh, the human one, uh, drawn out of the book of Daniel, and then the gathering of the elect and the establishment of the kingdom. What's very important for the listener of this chapter is not to hear what is going on as literal prediction by the historical Jesus of events yet to unfold. It's actually 
the, it's the Jesus of Mark's gospel, looking back over what Mark's household is experiencing and trying to offer encouragement and deepened faith in the midst of their own suffering. So these are not the imageries that we see that the sounds, uh, the sights of this chapter are not meant to be taken literally, but in the genre, in the particular genre of apocalyptic writing. So it's to that, it's to this chapter now that we turn and seek to unfold what Mark is writing about in the light of this understanding of apocalypticism. So the chapter begins in 13 with the, the disciples looking at the temple or coming out of the temple and saying, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And that's led some scholars to speculate, is Mark writing at a time when the temple has already been destroyed or is it already about to be destroyed? So it's this kind of toing and froing that has led scholars to think that Mark was writing around the year 70, either before or after the year 70, when the destruction of the temple was a reality, by the destruction by the Romans. So then we have Jesus in verse 3, sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. And the four uh, early appointed uh, disciples, Peter, James, John and Andrew, ask him privately, tell us when will this be and what will be the sign when these things will all be accomplished? What will be the sign that the, the destruction will take place? So what looks to be uh, a divine foretelling or prophecy of what's taking place, it's Mark's Jesus looking back, offering again hope and encouragement, drawing on apocalyptic writing. So he says in verse 5, Take heed that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am, and they will be, lead many astray. So in other words, there have been, Mark is reflecting on the reality that some people think they've got the answers and lead many astray. Jesus says to Mark's community, be very careful about these so-called predictors. Then in verse 7, when you hear of wars and rumours of wars, don't be alarmed. This must take place. And then Jesus says, but the end is not yet. In other words, there's still going to be ongoing conflict. It's not going to be overcome. It's part of the reality that followers of Jesus will face. And it's the reality that we face even today. Then in verse 8, nations will rise against nations, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. So again, Mark draws on this apocalyptic genre, this kind of coded way of saying that upheaval is going to be part of the reality of people's lives. And then in verse 8 to the last part, Jesus says, this is but the beginning of the birth pangs, as we part of the Jewish apocalyptic calendar already noted earlier. The birth, pang, uh, birth pangs are now beginning. And then in verses 9 through to 13, then comes a much more specific designation of these birth pangs. Uh, people will be delivered up to councils, be beaten in synagogues, brought before governors and kings for my sake, 
to bear testimony, testimony before them. And that's perhaps the experience of the Markan community. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations, says Jesus in verse 10. And then in verse 11, when they brought, bring you to trial, uh, deliver you up, don't be anxious, because what you're going to be speaking will come from the Holy Spirit. In other words, God will support you in the midst of these struggles. Verse 12, there's going to be domestic uh, tensions and tragedy. Verse 13, you'll be hated by all for my sake. And then finally comes the, the statement of faith. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So it's encouraging people who are in the midst of this struggle to be patient, to believe in the presence and the care of God in the midst of this, because that will bring, that will bring about salvation. Then in verse 14, Mark says, When you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand, like a wink-wink, Maybe this is a referring to an event that occurred in the temple when uh, um, something was set up in the temple that was completely against Jewish religious practice. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are on the housetop not go down or enter the house to take anything and so on. So there's this need to be preparedness for what's about to take place because there's going to be this tribulation so the birth the, the tribulation is now unfolding in that third element of the Jewish apocalyptic timetable uh, and never uh, and in verse 20 and if the Lord had not shortened the days no human being will be saved but for the sake of the for the elect whom God chose God shortened the days this is Mark's way of saying this suffering is not going is not eternal it's not going to go on forever god is in control and it's going to be shortened verse 21 and then if anyone looks to you says to you look here is the christ look there he is don't believe it because there's going to be false prophets and christs uh, to 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 lead astray the elect and then in verse 23 take heed I've told you all these things beforehand. In other words, have confidence that what is being said here and your experience is held by the power of God. God is present uh, in the midst of all this that's unfolding. chapter 1324 uh, Mark then draws again on apocalyptic imagery drawn from Isaiah 13 and Joel uh, about the coming of the Son of Man in clouds with great power and then in 28 verse 28 again he picks up uh, the image of the fig tree learn from its lesson uh, as soon as its branches becomes tender and puts forth its leaves you know that summer is near. And 29 and 30, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gate. This is the Son of Man. 30, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away 
before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So you can be confident that what's been said here as the eschatological slowdown occurs and the great tribulation takes place, God is acting and Jesus' words can be trusted. And the final section of this wonderful apocalyptic chapter in Mark prepares for the next section, the story of Jesus' suffering and death. So, verse 32, But of that day or that hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So it's unpredictable. You cannot predict what's going to happen. But then, from verse 33 to the end of this chapter, the word watch or take heed comes up. Take heed, watch, you don't know when the time will come. It's like someone going on a journey, leaves home and puts servants in charge, each with their own work, commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore. You don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, watch. That the listener of this particular passage would need to be unable to hear the words if they don't hear the words watch. So this uh, openness, this clarity of vision, uh, loosening the, uh, the chains of the heart so that one can really deeply see, connects to, of course to the earlier section, the Catechism on Discipleship, where the, the, the eyes of the blind needed to be opened. Here, as we're about to step into the Passion story, the words are watch. And, and what Mark also does is slow down the pace of the gospel story now. In fact, we even get the hours, the Roman hours. Uh, if you don't know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning, uh, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Well, this is preparing for the next immediately, next part of the, of the gospel. Evening, midnight, cockcrow or in the morning these are the hours that are going to define the passion narrative evening midnight cockcrow or in the morning jesus meal with his disciples his arrest the betrayal by simon peter of jesus jesus death and the resurrection all this all this is so important as as uh, Mark slows down the narrative pace and invites us, the listeners now, to deeply watch what's going on. As we look back over these chapters 11 and 12 and 13, we note how the Gospel's story of Jesus is reaching a crescendo. Over these chapters we've noted how Mark is preparing us for the passion of Jesus and the ultimate struggle that's going to occur with the religious establishment and even amongst the disciples. 
So the tension with the authorities and their institution is heightened. The temple becomes the site of conflict, of argument and exorcism. The religious interpreters of the Torah, the scribes, find themselves unable to comprehend Jesus' action or prophetic teaching, except for one, one scribe who asks the question about what's the greatest commandment. And while uh, the disciples are present, they appear, they, they appear to interact very little with what Jesus is on about. They're in the background, but they continue to misunderstand and are unable to scrutinize clearly what's about to happen. So that's why the final words in the apocalyptic chapter 13 is addressed to them, the disciples, the literary disciples of the gospel, but also to Mark's audience and to us. They and us, we must keep awake, we must be alert to what's happening. And behind this encouragement to remain alert and reflective of before what's about to unfold, Jesus, uh, his apocalyptic chapter teaching concludes with an, uh, a faint note of hope. Suffering and persecution will have reign for a limited period, period only, but those who are afflicted, that's Mark's audience, and even ourselves in what we are enduring today, we can be confident that God is with us or with them, and the ultimate victory and God's salvation of humanity is inevitable. So that's the hopeful apocalyptic message which Mark will convey to the despondent members of the gospel community living under the power of Roman despot. And a final word concerns the closing words of Jesus, which acts as a powerful bridge to the passion. He encourages the disciples to keep awake through each of the major divisions of Roman time, evening, midnight, cockcrow, and in the morning. And these divisions will reappear as explicit temporal markers in the Passion narrative that's about to come in chapter 14, verses 17 and 72, in chapter 15, verses 25, 33 and 42, and at the beginning of the resurrection narrative in chapter 16, verse 2. Mark uses these temporal markers to identify significant moments in the unfolding of the Passion's drama, namely to reveal the disciples' lack of alertness in contrast to the spiritual wakefulness of Jesus engaged in intense cosmic battle with the injunction to keep awake. With this injunction, uh, these chapters come to an end and the drama of the passion is about to unfold. <laughs>